In the summer of 2022, Footnote Forum, the digital portion of the CUNY Law Review, will publish an article called Cruel and Usual. This is one of its authors, Shannon Haupt. Yeah, so I decided to go to CUNY and law school in general based on experiences I had living in Michigan and especially advocacy around water issues in Kalamazoo with the Enbridge oil spill in Detroit with water shutoffs and clean air advocacy um, and being so proximate to Flint during the you know height and, and aftermath of the Flint water crisis, which sometimes is hard to describe it as an aftermath because a lot of people still don't have clean water. But um, so I came to law school in general thinking about environmental advocacy and sort of starting to like expose myself to you know prison abolition theory and activism and the Black Lives Matter movement. When Shannon arrived in New York City they attended an admitted students event at CUNY School of Law. Other students sat around the table some new to the city as well some not. Several professors worked the room welcoming students to law school and doing their best to stir up a sense of community. One of them Steve Zeidman runs the Defenders Clinic, one of the gold stars on the school's report card. He has salt and pepper hair and a certain gravity unique to longtime public defenders who've seen it all, or to spiritual gurus. Sometimes he seems like both. We just started chatting and I talked about some of my background, but that I was also really interested in public defense and that I couldn't I didn't quite know like what the crossover was between those things. Professor Zeidman nodded and smirked. After a well timed pause he was just like, they're more connected than you think. I would had no idea like really what where that would take me, but I think it has really guided a lot of what I've tried to involve myself in um, at, at school and trying to sort of marry the work that I was exposed to before law school and, and what I've been doing since. So, yeah, yeah. And now here we are talking about environmental justice inside of prisons. This is the Footnote Forum podcast. I'm your host, Michael Maskin. This year in Footnote Forum, we have focused on personal experiences of incarcerated people. In the 25.2 release of our journal, our colleagues present scholarship about environmental justice and especially how these issues affect marginalized groups. This episode continues those threads with what we think is a really amazing story about a fantastic article written by our classmates, Shannon Haupt and Phil Miller. Shannon is... Well, I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Shannon Haupt. I am a 3L at CUNY School of Law. I live in Brooklyn, and my pronouns are they, them. Fast forward from the story you heard at the beginning of this episode. Shannon is now in the Defender's Clinic with Professor Zeidman, finding out how true his words were from years ago. This past summer, the summer of 2021, Shannon and our producer, Colby, went for a walk on the east side of Manhattan. Shannon was so excited about work they were doing with an incarcerated man upstate. The work centered around this man's failing health, poor medical care, and some very concerning conditions in the prisons where this man lived. And it all started in the Defenders Clinic. The Defenders Clinic focuses mostly on clemency, though not exclusively. Clemency is an executive power that the governor of every state has to grant people their freedom um, from prison, essentially the stroke of a pen. And so what we do in the Defenders Clinic is work with people who have exhausted every other avenue of 
possible release from prison, especially people serving really long sentences. Students in the Defenders Clinic partner with these applicants. And we basically build a relationship with them and their community and support network and build their case of why they should be granted clemency. So when someone gets a really long sentence and has no more chance to appeal and no hope for parole anytime soon, a state's clemency statute gives the governor the power to simply set people free. I was paired with Susie Charlotte, who is another 3L at CUNY, a really great friend and really awesome advocate. And the two of us met Ramon. Shannon and Susie worked with Ramon for several months, compiling his case for freedom. And submitted his clemency application in November of 2021. Yeah. And so we emailed and sent just like a little intro of like, I'm Shannon, I'm Susie, and then sharing a little bit about ourselves. I think something that the clinic emphasizes is, and and I think the work in general, it's really important to, for this kind of work to move from like a relationship building place. So we don't jump right into like all the legal issues. It's more about just like getting to know each other and, and building a, a lot of trust at the start. He replied pretty quickly and was like really excited to hear from us. I remember one of the first things that he said, you know, because we like came ready with a lot of questions to ask him, which now being the one being asked questions, I know how it feels. Um, and he he would he would say sometimes like, oh, I'm kind of shy, like I don't know. And then he'd launch into a story, um, and that's like one of my favorite things about him is that he he has this very like. Um, gentle uh, presence and then can just like really sh- like it's very brave and vulnerable and I think it's really cool yeah while it's not explicitly legal advocacy clemency is is I think a lot of narrative like providing a human like a human story there are legal issues that are raised, but it's not a legal process. It's a political process. Our understanding is that thousands of people apply for clemency. In a good year, maybe a handful are granted. A lot of people, I think, pursue clemency, and clemency is sort of viewed as a last resort. The applicants chosen to work with the Defenders Clinic are not likely to get out without it, even though it's a long shot. One recent client is doing 75 to life, meaning he will not be eligible for parole until he is 101 years old. Clemency is his only chance at freedom again in this lifetime. But this story is not about clemency. So Susie and I were working with Ramon to get all of his records together. As someone who has moved through the prison system for 30 years, Ramon has a lot of paperwork. And there's a whole process for requesting documents. And one of the documents we request is medical records. At the same time, Ramon told them he had been feeling terrible and thought his health was failing him. He was in and out of the hospital pretty regularly. Within a year and a half, Ramon suffered... Four separate strokes. And it seemed like no one had a handle on what was causing this. We are learning that from him, sort of anecdotally, and then seeing it on record of the sort of disjointedness of being sent to a specialist here, being sent to a specialist there. Still, Ramon kept identifying new symptoms, but no one settled on a diagnosis. Ramon communicated to Shannon and Susie that he continued to feel worse. So that was, you know, obviously a a huge alarm for us. Finally, on the advice of professors and mentors, 
and in an effort to try and get Ramon the treatment he needed. We filed a medical parole application on his behalf, and we worked with a nurse, Jennifer Grossman, who is really awesome. She has started her own organization called Nurses for Social Justice. We basically sent her all of Ramon's medical records, and she was able to put it all together and sort of like see a a cohesive narrative of like, these are the persistent things that keep happening. And he's been treated for strokes four times, and, um, you know, they diagnosed this, but he hasn't been treated for it. Um, And basically gave us his entire medical history and seeing it all in front of us. I remember having calls with Jennifer, who has worked with a lot of people on similar issues. And she said a few things along the lines of like, this is the worst care that someone has received that I've seen. None of that is surprising. This is Jennifer Grossman of Nurses for Social Justice. When you read medical records from prisons and jails, uh, I don't know if you can be surprised by the horror of medical issues that goes on there. If you are incarcerated, you know, for years and you're drinking water that's contaminated, there's just so many. There's immediate and really long-term problems with that. The immediate effect is going to be the symptoms of constipation or diarrhea, stomach cramping, things like that. But the long term, of course, is cancer. Like, that's the biggest concern. And there was a study that came out in 2020, I think, that talked about, like, the plethora of cancers that are related to contaminated drinking water. When Jennifer looked at all of Ramon's records, she saw many symptoms such as stomach aches and constipation, which could easily go overlooked in a massive bureaucratic institution like the prison system. When I looked at Ramon's case, I mean... It was just very clear that he had been really suffering for a long time without the care that he needed and that he was not being paid attention to. She would be apologizing to us for sounding so angry because of how angry Ramon's medical records made her. And it was really, really scary and really grounding and like um, that there that like something needed to to change and, and that there's more going on than what um, than what the medical system was acknowledging um, with Ramon's uh, symptoms. So let's talk about the water. Some of the language in the article, and I can quote, the water smelled like a pond. For nearly 18 months, the water at Elmira Correctional Facility where Ramon was incarcerated was brown and hot to the touch. Drinking it made his ears ring. He said it tasted like chemicals, messed up his stomach. So hearing that and hearing him I guess, when did you, when did he first mention the water? When did it first become an issue that you realized, oh, wait, there's, there's something going on here? There was a night like many, many years ago where Ramon was in his cell and the water had been really bad. And then all of a sudden it wasn't anymore. And that he and his cellmate filled up plastic bags with the water and like tied them off and put them under their bed because they weren't sure how long the water was going to be clean for or healthy to drink for. And Ramon has long history of gastrointestinal, like stomach issues. Ramon also came down with pneumonia around that same time. So Shannon and Susie began tapping their networks, asking, what do we do? How can we help this man? 
And we pretty quickly were able to set up a call with Mark Shervington, who is an advocate with the Release Aging People from Prison campaign and was really enthusiastic to talk to us about his experiences and, and, and his perspective on the issue. He shared about his time at Otisville Correction Facility and the prevalence of H. pylori, which is a bacteria that travel can travel through water as well as, you know, other other ways of transmission. But his recounting was that H. pylori was a huge issue at Otisville. That, I think, was a tipping point in looking at the issue because we were able to find cases from Otisville and Greenhaven a little bit later on that were filed by prisoners representing themselves alleging these issues. And a lot of them are two parts. The first is the water issue. And then the second is the denial of medical care related to whatever health issues they got from the water. H. pylori causes a lot of um, like gastrointestinal um you know, at the minimum discomfort and at the most it can have really serious long-term effects. He mentioned having pneumonia around the time that the water switched from being terrible to clean enough that he filled up bags with it. And I did a Google search about Legionnaire's disease, which was um, something that was co-occurring in Flint, Michigan with the lead water crisis. Legionnaire's disease is a type of pneumonia caused by Legionella bacteria. Remember from the intro, Shannon was doing environmental activism in Michigan when the Flint water crisis story made national news. You know, it was all over the news all the time that there was a Legionnaire's outbreak in the water. In putting together this episode, we found it remarkable how many of Shannon's life experiences came together in one man's story. Not only did Shannon move to New York for law school, but at their first event, they sat next to the professor who is a recognized leader in the field of clemency. They got paired with a client not only who sought clemency, but who also needed medical attention. His randomly selected clinic student just happened to be someone who lived near Flint during that tragedy and who could begin putting these pieces together. Still, there's only so much anyone can do when evidence and the people who need to hear it are separated by walls, fences, and an information barricade through which even a simple phone call can be difficult. The prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. To refuse charges, thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Well, my name is Ramon Enriquez. I'm a prisoner here at Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York State. Uh, I've been incarcerated uh, 30 years, going on 31, since I was 16 years old. I'm serving 40 years to life for double homicide. I took two lives when I was a kid. I'm sorry, I can't. It's okay, Ramon. You're doing great. You got me crying in a maximum prison. You gotta be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Ramon told us about experiencing his first stroke. I pick up the water, the, the pot to pour the water into a cup in his hand, mm-hmm. and the pot falls out of my hand. Mm-hmm. And I say, Yo, I couldn't hold it up, and my hand just went weak, and then my leg went weak, and I fell on the floor. And I'm, t- I'm still talking to him, like yeah. like my life depended on it, right? And I explained to all the process that 
that I'm, my mind is going to, I feel like somebody's squeezing my brain. They started mm-hmm. yelling for the officers and they came and took me out and they thought I was on drugs. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, what did I take? And I'm telling them, look, I don't feel my hand, I don't feel my leg. My arm, my whole left side is dumb. And Over the course of 2020, Ramon would have four confirmed strokes. Soon after, Shannon and Susie came up with the idea of applying for medical parole for Ramon. One of the stories Ramon tells, which led to the suspicion that the water in his prison could be a major source of his health problems, involves an ice machine. Ramon has been a refrigeration mechanic inside. While working on ice machines and other pipes, he would see serious corrosion to pipes and tubing where it should not normally exist. This was caused by the same water coming out of the faucets in the cells. Ramon described it as... Like you're drinking pond water. It yeah. smells like pond water. Right now, this is water that's supposed to be chlorinated and all that. Yeah. They had a Elmira Correctional Facility. The water was rust. They had a steam return line break up front somewhere in the superintendent's office. And they had to shut the steam down. Now, the water I had in my coming out of my cell, I put grievances in, I put complaints in. They just said I was crazy. They put me mental health. The water used to come out hot. Yeah. Right? This is um, H-Block in Elmira. And G-Block. The water was coming out hot and it looked like tea mm-hmm. from the rust. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I told them that this, this tasted and smelled like the condensate return from the steam. I said, it should be possible that this is coming out of my sink. And it used to hiss, like, shh, 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 you know? So it was like a lot of air pressure in it. There's supposed to be no air in it. Yeah. So... I told him, I said, you must have the steam return hooked up somewhere to shut up. You stupid. You crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. They sent me to mental health. Now, I ended up getting a psychiatric evaluation over that. Wow. Okay, so then that pipe broke. And the water was ice cold and crystal clear. That whole, the, the, the whole time, I, I took plastic bags and filled them up with water, big garbage bags. And I filled up all the buckets and bowls I had in my cell. Yeah. I had a problem defecating because I couldn't use the bathroom because I was always dehydrated. Yeah. No matter how much of this water I would drink, I couldn't go to the bathroom. That day, I drank that water out of that sink that was clear. And my neighbor, too, also, mm-hmm. we drank that and we were able to use the bathroom like 10 minutes later. You go to the shower, I don't know if it's too much chlorine in the water or whatever it is, but it burns your eyeballs. Here, they had a, a fecal matter in, in the water in the summertime. They never told us anything to, to the Department of Health was the one that, that, that made the complaint and they gave us water to, but they never told us that. They, 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 they had emails and they've been warned that there was fecal matter in the whole Fallsburg area in the, in the, in the drinking water. Oh, it messed my stomach up. I have to take medication for my stomach every day, two pills. 40 milligrams of Pridal set. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's um, it every day. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Ramon, did you ever talk with any of the COs or any of the prison staff about the water and try to see if they could do something about it? Yeah, you know what they did? They sent me to mental health. They said I was crazy. Ramona, I'm wondering do the COs drink the water themselves? Only if they get a boil it, I've seen them drink it. Yeah. But nobody drinks it straight up, no, except us. Yeah. And the bottles, we buy bottles of water, 20-ounce bottles of water, mm-hmm. for 31, 36 cents a bottle. So that's $17. You only can buy 48, and 48 don't last. Right. H. Pylori is, uh, is very present at this prison. And uh, we don't know how we're getting it. Either we're getting it from the trade, 
or the food utensils that are being used in the mess hall to cook, or maybe it's the water itself are coming out of the sink. But a lot of people are getting that here. It seems like he was being gaslit, and he was he was relying on rumors from from other people incarcerated. He was relying on just sort of these whispers about the water, which, you know, here's someone who's getting pneumonia, getting Legionnaires' disease from brown, hot, murky water, and yet, and and the COs, the corrections officers, are bringing their own bottled water in. It seems like no one was taking seriously these what he was saying that he's literally getting sick from being forced to drink this water that he has no choice not to drink it really seems like there is this collective resistance to actually acknowledging that what he's saying is true there's a huge gap between what people are experiencing inside of prison day to day and what docs have on record say like as far as the quality of of the conditions I think still Ramon would say that, like, it's not just the water, you know, that's causing his health issues. We know that every year spent inside takes, on average, two years off of someone's life. And that's for a lot of reasons. Water is possibly one of them based on what people are experiencing inside. It very likely is. And I'm hedging that against what is actually being reported which is that the water is fine and that there are no contaminant exceedances or anything like that for us to be worried about. So so there is this like very infuriating, I think gaslighting is like a really good way to frame it because, yeah, um, Ramon filed grievances about this, um, which are complaints up the chain of command inside of a prison often just sort of get reviewed and, and nothing actionable comes from it but it's it's often like for ramon sort of the only way that he could lodge a complaint about what was going on i mean ramon is incredibly resilient and creative and has just been so attentive to what's going on throughout the time that he's been inside one of the first places that i found a source about contaminated water in prison was prison legal news which is a website that people who are currently incarcerated often write to and are published in. And I found an article written by someone talking about ways to filter your water in your cell and of like ways to test it and treat it with just like things that you might have. My name is Panayoki Cholkis. I use him, his pronouns. This is an assistant editor with Prison Legal News, the site Shannon just mentioned. They provide resources to incarcerated people and their families, often about the conditions of confinement. One of the topics that we've looked into a lot is environmental justice in prisons and specifically water quality and the impact of building prisons and operating prisons, both on prisoners and on the surrounding ecosystems. The outcome that we found consistently was that prisons are toxic places generally and that there's specific aspects of toxicity that can be attributed to them. Some of the problems they found include higher levels of radon, uh, poor ventilation, and and in other ways, you know, totally substandard health care to to address a problem or even recognize it. Water contamination and sewage problems. They were finding these broad spectrum violations consistently at prisons. And I think that points to what could be done. But the problem, as we know, is that prisons don't tend to get scrutinized at that level. Mm-hmm. And some some areas are actually like exempt from certain standards. Like you can't apply OSHA standards or labor standards to prison work because they're not actually people aren't considered 
employees or, or laborers are they're essentially you know they're considered slaves under the 13th amendment so uh, labor protections don't apply to them so in relation to environmental policy you know so we see that these, these policies are on the books that, that do exist to protect public health but they don't get applied in a way that protects prisoners um, I think the example you gave of, of medical neglect in prisons is, is also very similar where there are these, these mandates on the books that um, people are supposed to benefit from basic public health standards uh, whether they're in prison or not but we see it so often that it doesn't happen that way and I think that the common thread there is that there's a level of is a dehumanization or maintaining like kind of a, a second class of people uh, that when someone is put in a jail or prison that there's a question about whether they are afforded the same basic rights the, basic, the same basic human and civil rights and I think the pointing to the prison labor slavery problem uh, that that's a clear indication that there is very much so you know on on the record in the US Constitution an acceptance of prisoners as less deserving of basic human rights and protections and you know, that's got to change I think in order to address the toxic water problems in prisons uh, that has to change three of my years inside were spent inside of solitary confinement but my first couple of weeks I began to notice like pressure and pain in my lower abdomen and what it was was a hernia and I knew what it was because I had had one before maybe five years earlier so my name is Phil Miller I am a 2L at the CUNY School of Law my pronouns are he him his and I'm familiar with some of the aspects about water in prison because I spent 17 years of my life in New York State prisons and so I remember the nurse walking down the gallery one day and I was trying to get her attention because in solitary, you know, it's just, you're lucky when people decide to walk down the gallery and you got, if you have to share a story with them or tell them something, you want to make sure you get their attention because they speed walk and it might be another day or who knows, all day before they come back. In order to get a nurse's attention, people in solitary would often have to bang on the door, shout, wave, uh, something, anything to catch their attention, whether they hear you, see you, something. So this nurse was walking down the gallery, and I got her attention. She came to the cell, and I said, listen, can you please put me on the um, the medical call-out list so that I can see the doctor because I have a hernia? And she just stared at me. She's like, you have a hernia? I said, yeah, I have a hernia. She's like, how do you know? I was like, well, you know, I had one before, and I know what it feels like. She was like, how long have you been feeling the the pain or how long have you, do you think you've had this hernia? And I'm like, I've probably had this hernia now for at least a few months, at least. Um, and it's a point now where it's bulging through the skin and like, I know what it is. And she was like, impossible. She said, if you've had a hernia for that long, you'd be dead already. And then she walked away and she didn't put me on the medical call out list. So I never got to see the doctor. She came back the next day. I said, listen, can you please let me see the doctor? And there in most facilities, and especially in a solitary confinement facility, the nurse who does the rounds is like the gatekeeper between you and the doctor. So getting to see the doctor, you have to go through the nurse first, and they have to take your name and everything like that. So I ended up having to write letters to everyone, grievances, letters to outside organizations, to all of the, the uh, prison's administrative staff, until finally someone listened and got me in to see the doctor. And as soon as I saw the doctor and he checked me out, he said, 
this is a hernia. It's kind of advanced. What took you so long <laughs> to come see me? I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but yeah, that kind of thing happens a lot. The water complaints were almost never taken seriously. Usually when things start happening with the water, the first thing that starts happening is prisoners will begin to speak amongst themselves. Like, yo, my water's coming out of my, my sink, this color or this taste. Um, and someone else will be like, yeah, so is mine, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll, we'll talk to somebody in another building to see if they're having similar issues. Um, and eventually we'll make it to, we'll start talking to the ILC reps. I mean, liaison, now they switched it to, I think offender liaison something but it was called the inmate liaison committee and their job is to take any complaints from the prisoner population to the the prison administration um, and share those share our concerns and try to find a resolution and so you would bring the issues to them the facility staff would listen to those issues and then in terms of water issues specifically they'd always say there's nothing wrong with the water it was tested at the source it's fine. Meanwhile, on our end, the prisoner side of the sink, <laughs> the water comes out brown. It tastes super metallic. It's hard to drink. Me and other uh, friends of mine would try to mask the flavor because you need water. And if and your cell is locked, you're not getting water from any other cell, any other source. It's the sink where it's going to come from. And so if it's brown or tastes horrible, you still need water, whether it's to make your juice or your coffee or cook your spaghetti or whatever you have you know, you need the water. And so we would try to mask the flavor of it with like iced tea packets, mix like two or three of them together and just hope that the flavor of the iced tea would overpower whatever flavor the water already had or coffee or hot chocolate, things like that. But um, even with those additives, you'd still be able to taste the water. Many facilities do sell bottled water. Not every facility sells it in their commissary. And when they do, you're limited by the amount of income you have because your prison wages are usually... Average is about 25 cents an hour. If you have a good job, depending, and by good, I mean like one of the higher paying ones, which is, can go up to like 35 cents an hour, 36 cents. Um, if you're making license plates for the state, like an Auburn Correctional Facility, I think they might go as high as like 60 something cents. Maybe one or two people have that, that high of a pay grade. Um, but for the most part, people are not making enough money to buy enough bottled water to last them every single day of the month. At some point, you have to drink the water in your cell, and there's just no way around it. And did the guards have to drink it too? Oh, no, 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 no. Never in my experience. I've never once in all of my years uh, seen a CO drink water, prison water. Every single one of them had big, get clear gallon jugs of, uh, of their own water, and they would just carry it with them like it was a, like a pet. <laughs> they just put it down on the desk. Wherever they went, they walked with it, took it with them. They would not drink regular water. And I've had CEOs tell me, like, I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me to drink this water. Phil said people even tried to convince their visitors to sneak water out of the facility from the visiting room and to have it tested. They hoped this might lead to universal testing inside the prison. We, that was our dream for, the, for all the prisons, really. <laughs> so, you know, from an advocacy perspective, we talked a lot about voicelessness, helplessness, and yet it sounds like there are incarcerated people who are yelling who are make, literally yelling and trying to make noise and raise awareness and so as someone who's worked as a jailhouse lawyer and also now you can see from an advocacy perspective how would you suggest you know, what what is effective well there's only so much you can do almost always someone will people will try to come together and try to find a way to bring more attention to something so i have another example of helplessness who's that word just triggered something and it's not related to water. But while I was in sol solitary confinement, a few cells down from me was a guy who had been there for a couple of years already or a few years already. But he was in his cell and he began yelling for help. 
Now, in solitary confinement, the guards are lazy, so they rarely will do their rounds. They're supposed to make rounds like every certain, I don't know if it's every hour, every 45 minutes, something like that, and then check off whatever form that says they made their round or click a button on the wall somewhere that does it. But many times they don't do it or they'll come in just to where the button is and then go around to as a shortcut and hit the other one. This what it looks like they made their rounds. Like they do stuff like that. And so they they don't really walk as much as they're supposed to. And so this one guy was having a heart attack in his cell and he began to yell for help and no guards were coming. And so finally, you know, his neighbors heard him and then everyone, then they started saying, yo, what's up? What's up? He's like, please call, call for help. And so then they start yelling and then everyone else hears it. We can't see each other because we're all in our individual cells, but we hear it. And so then everyone starts yelling to try to make more noise for a guard to hear us on the gallery. So they come down to see at least what the fuck is going, what's happening. Damn. <laughs> but, uh, and so the guards finally came down. But in solitary, there are special procedures before they can open the cell because they, in their minds, they think maybe you're just faking this to get them to open the gate so you can attack them or something stupid like that. So a guard came down. He wouldn't open the gate to help him. The guy's on the floor yelling, please help me. My chest is hurting. Please help me. That's he was like, I can't do anything. So he's he called the sergeant. He had to wait for the sergeant to come down. The sergeant came down, but they still don't have enough staff ratio for one person. They need like three or something like that. So they had to wait for more people. By the time they got him out, he died and he had been calling for help for maybe about 10 minutes. Uh, it's just a crazy situation. So there's always an air of helplessness. Why not just fix the water? I mean, why, why is there such a hesitancy from docs to make these changes? I would cut down on complaints. It would probably mean an increase in state funding to these facilities and make them more habitable and and why is there this hesitancy, this gaslighting, this indifference to actually making these changes? Yeah, I have no idea why why facilities or the, the entire system wouldn't want to look into the, the complaints about water more seriously and have it tested inside. Um, it could only be to the benefit of everyone who's drinking it. One guess, and I'm probably wrong, would be maybe... The negative publicity that would come from confirming something was actually wrong with water in multiple locations. Um, and not just negative publicity for the docs system, but anything that happens in docs reflects on the governor. So usually governors have their little secret backdoor quiet policies about what's going to come out to the media, what's not about prisons. Like prisons are like the worst thing the governor has to deal with um, in terms of publicity. And so I'm thinking that might be a deterrent. But that's just my guess because I really don't know why they would not want to test the water. I don't know. So what happens next? So zooming out a little bit, <laughs> a gap that seemed like it needed to be filled is what is the actual testing practices for water in prisons? What is it right now? Because people inside are not apprised of the information and on paper, the results are coming back that there's no contamination. And yet we have a litany of complaints about the terrible quality. And so what's actually going on? Shannon worked with a number of professors and legal professionals to draft FOIL requests to find out more about water testing in prisons and about how water moves through the facility. They discovered several cases where people tried to bring attention to these issues in court, only to be denied early in the process every time. Even where an incarcerated person's claim narrated experiences similar to Ramon's and raised issues about the water. If Docs comes back and says, here's our official record, the water's clean, 
then it it gets the case gets dismissed. Finally, Shannon's research led them to Professor Anthony Maffa at the University of Maine. Professor Maffa does a lot of research around prison conditions and human rights issues. He turned Shannon onto this idea that Ramon might have a claim rooted in the Eighth Amendment that a certain condition of confinement amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. They also found that recognition of a threat of future harm can be enough to satisfy the standard for cruel and unusual punishment. And that's from a case where a prisoner was being exposed to secondhand smoke. And he filed a lawsuit saying that that constant exposure and his inability to move away from it, to avoid it, always being exposed to it, was predisposing him to a risk of future health problems. And it's so well documented, the harm of secondhand smoke, he was able to really quantify the harm that he was exposed to. So that sounds like a big win. Part of why it's difficult is because the standard for the actor who contributed to the the cruel and unusual punishment is deliberate indifference. So they have to know about the issue and know that it's bad, <laughs> for lack of a, a more complicating term, and then do and then not do something about it. So what I see with the gap between what people are experiencing and what docs is saying on paper is an intentional or willful ignorance to the problem. Their failure to document or properly diagnose or address any issue that comes up is so that they have on paper that they don't know that there's a problem. So that when this kind of case comes forward, they can say, we have on record that the water is fine. Water testing does happen at prisons right now. There's national and state mandates around how water is tested. The issue that I suspect exists is that water is only getting tested at specific points of the prisons. So if you think about a water delivery system, you have whatever the source is. A river, maybe a reservoir, gets piped through a water treatment facility. And then you have a transportation from the source to the building. These are the water mains that bring water from treatment facilities to our homes and buildings, just like in every municipality across the country. The actual physical building. And a lot of times water is tested at that point where the water is meeting the building before it goes into the distribution system in the infrastructure of the prison. So at that point, the water might be fine. Like it actually is coming out with accurate results that there's no contamination. But we don't know what's changing once it goes into the prison. Is it sitting? Like are the pipes old. <laughs> we know that they are because some of these prisons are 100 years old and a lot of them still have lead pipes. And we don't have a record, despite a lot of FOIL requests, of where exactly pinpointed in prisons is the water actually getting tested. And what happens between that point and the point at which residents of those prisons make contact with the water, at the faucets and in the showers. As Shannon developed a working relationship and friendship with Ramon, they found it impossible to do this research and hear of these conditions without feeling heartbroken for this man and everyone in his situation. To go for so long without clean water coming out of his faucet and then the relief that he experienced when it switched all of a sudden inexplicably to being clean. You know, I, I, I can't possibly begin to like enumerate the ways in which someone's 
agency and control are stripped from them through incarceration. But I think that Ramon has really made a lot of efforts to make sure that his voice is heard. This kind of issue can't be approached as a single problem that if we just fix this, then prisons are okay. Like, I think there are a lot of different ways to approach it. And one that I find very appealing is this idea of looking at what the Constitution of the United States demands through an abolitionist lens, which is that if we are actually guaranteed freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, a right to life, liberty, and happiness, and due process, then what's happening right now is none of those things. Even though people go into healthcare, Jennifer Grossman again, and they say it's their calling, or maybe they don't, right? Maybe it's just because it's good money and good health insurance and good for you. But there's still power issues. There's still all the hierarchy. There's still your entire life that you have, and you're just going to a job. And I have seen, not in an incarceration setting, right, where that's a million times worse, but just in a primary care setting or just in a hospital setting or, or or even, you know, at a clinic that's supposed to have higher standards than everywhere else. People use their power or their need for control and power to hurt each other. And one of the ways that people do that is to withhold. And they withhold medical care. They withhold compassion. They punish that is what I see all of the time in all of these types of settings because we are humans. And that's not going to stop, which is why we have to have controls in place, right? It's why we have to be more careful with the people that are the most vulnerable and try to pad them from this, right? Try to protect them from this. And unfortunately, that is really, really rare and really hard to get people to do, and it costs money. <laughs> I would offer maybe as a net, like my own desire to try to shift towards optimism. But if yes, yes, yes. But you're you're right. I mean, I, I would say you know my my thinking is too. Humans created this mess. We created these systems. Prison is not a natural thing. <laughs> the healthcare system is also not a natural thing. And as opposed to, you could argue, compassion and empathy and sympathy are natural and are natural feelings. And so if there's a way, if humans were able to create this stuff, then maybe we can also dismantle it. And maybe we can also undo those things in a way that we can't undo compassion. We can't undo empathy. We can't undo those things because we didn't create them. They just are. And I am. I am hopeful for that. The Footnote Forum podcast is part of the CUNY Law Review at the City University of New York School of Law. Shannon and Phil's article is available on the Footnote Forum website at cunylawreview.org. That's C-U-N-Y-L-A-W-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. I highly encourage you to go read it. You can also find the transcript of this episode at that address. This episode was produced by me, Michael Maskin, along with Clem Storms and Colby Williams, with writing and direction by Colby Williams. It was edited by Tunde Ogunfolaju and Colby Williams. Research and citations for the transcript were provided by CUNY Law Review editors and Footnote Forum staff, including Maura Gingrich, Lisa Cho, Morgan Reed, Aaron Quinn, 
and Connor Lee Spahn, who may be a new dad by the time this is released. We recorded at CUNY School of Law and at Make Life Studios in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They have an amazing studio, and you have to check them out. Finally, keep up with Jennifer Grossman and Nurses for Social Justice at Nurses, the number four, socialjustice.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-S, four, S-O-C-I-A-L-J-U-S-T-I-C-E dot O-R-G, and Panagiotti Solkas, and Prison Legal News at prisonlegalnews.org, P-R-I-S-O-N-L-E-G-A-L-N-E-W-S dot O-R-G. Personally, something that struck me from talking with Shannon, Phil, and Ramon was how people outside the prison system have an easier time making their voices heard than those inside, especially on issues that directly affect incarcerated people. We all have a voice, and each one of us can use it in powerful ways, even if we aren't lawyers. Thank you for listening.